At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit. You forced me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome back to episode 18 of the Best in Show podcast. We hope everyone had a wonderful 4th of July. I am Bryony Smith and as with every week, I am joined by my lovely and talented co-host, Alan Messick. Alan, where are you at this weekend? Well, hey, Bryony. I am, uh, for episode 18, recording a little remotely this week. Uh, I'm working at the Alameda County Fair in the Bay Area of California. It's about four hours from where I live. And for the last, I think, 16 or 17 years, I have spent my summers in Pleasanton, California, as the small animal coordinator at the Alameda County Fair, which um, is a, a, a rather major fair in California. It's different from the fair that I grew up with on the East Coast, the Durham Fair in Connecticut, for those nutmeggers listening. Um, in that it's way more than just three or four days. It's actually like four full weekends in a normal year. And California, as a lot of you guys have, have heard, are a little behind the times when it comes to COVID. So while other fairs and, and events are totally back to normal around the country, um, a lot of California fairs still aren't quite there yet. So this year, the Alameda County Fair is once again canceled. But um, thank you, or thanks to the, the, the forethought of the people behind the scenes at this fair and the local 4-H and FFA, the fair is rolling through with a junior livestock and small animal show. So the fair is not necessarily open to the public, but it is uh, open to giving those kids an opportunity to show their animals still, which I think is critical right now. I mean, fairs were a big part of my upbringing and my introduction to rabbits. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you on this podcast if it wasn't for my local fair growing up in Durham, Connecticut. Um, you know, I think the same could be said for you too, right, Brian? When you were a kid, fairs were your introduction, right? Yeah, uh, fair was where I first saw rabbits shown. Um, went to the Kansas State Fair, which is where I saw all the different breeds and varieties on display and really kind of fell in love with the idea of having and showing rabbits. And then went to the Butler County Fair and showed my first rabbits under Connell Addison. So I think fairs are a really important gateway. And we've heard our guests say over and over again, most of them did start um, with some connection to 4-H and fairs, whether as a youth exhibitor themselves or as a parent. I mean, that's a great point. I'm just reflecting on Dr. Scott Williamson's interview that we did, you know, with episode four, he got toward Dutch because he saw them walking through the fair and he's like, Oh, what's that? That's, it struck his eye on that. That was his exposure to rabbits and look at him 60 years later, he's still doing this. And it was because a fair uh, was that exposure. So important. It's that public face of agriculture. Yeah, and that's it's scary. My honestly, my my worry after COVID is that without these fairs, um, 
you know, and these kids not having that exposure, you know, the turnover in rabbits, we're in all animals really for, for young people is, is, is small. You know, they've, they've only got a few years that they're, that they're doing this. And if they're not exposed to it, even if it's for just that one year, and in some cases out here where it's probably going to be two years at these county fairs, if they don't have that exposure for two years in a, in a spectrum of maybe at the most 10 years that they might actually be eligible to be showing in a junior or youth sort of atmosphere, you know, what does that do to us long-term? Are we going to have like a lag time and we're we going to have like a break and, and will we find kids even after this then that are exposed to, to rabbits? So my encouragement to those that are still doing this is that fairs really are important and they're really not that antiquated, that they still do serve as an exposure to agriculture and to rabbits and showing animals. Um, so to continue to get out there and go to those events if you're a superintendent, please keep your job. Please keep doing this. There is some hope. And then, um, you know, keep doing educational stuff at fairs wherever you go. You know, back in the day, and if you read those old DRs like you and I love to do, they talked about, you know, our, our, our board members used to talk about those fair packets that the airbase still provides, which offer educational material that a fair superintendent of a rabbit barn or a cavey barn or both or a poultry or small animal department would offer to the public, which offers literature and, and information and publication on, you know, finding out more information about showing rabbits and the ARDA and um, whether or not people are still picking up those packets, people are still passing rabbits at the fair. And for the first time ever seeing that, wow, that's a rabbit. That looks like a cat. Like, whoa, I don't know. Rabbits came in that many colors or, whoa, that one's got long hair. Or look at the floppy ears. Those, those moments that people experience and as they pass through a barn, or what hooks them and might even, in fact, get them to buy their first rabbit and then be exposed to the ARBA and, and what we all do and love and treasure every day. Oh, yes. Uh, and I know that a lot of people who are in charge of fairs or participate in fairs have started some really innovative ideas to kind of connect with the public. Um, I know breed displays are very common at some fairs. The Kansas State Fair has just started doing this the past few years. We've had some really outstanding volunteers who look for as many examples of different breeds as they can to put on display so people can kind of have a reference point instead of, oh, I like, you know, the cute rabbit with the the eyeliner. You know, they can tell, oh, that's a dwarf oto. That's a, a distinct breed of rabbit. And maybe, you know, it catches their eye. Like, they learn some more about it. Um, even at smaller fairs, I know I was superintendent of my county fair a couple of years and I brought, you know, a couple of rabbits from our barn just for people to pet. You know, we walk through, we don't like people to poke at the rabbits, but I had a couple that were designated petting rabbits. So if people came through and said, oh, look, I said, hey, would you like me to get this rabbit out so you can pet it? And just touching, you know, I took one of my mom's mini rucks. It wasn't a great rabbit, but, you know, it made a good petting rabbit. And people, you know, got to touch that fur and, you know, just, just things like that. I mean, think about all of us. It was often one of those really just small interactions that sparked our love for this hobby. And that fur that you just mentioned, even if it's not a good Minirex, Minirex fur, even, even in like, like the, the bottom end of a class at a show to the, to the outside eye, the average person walking through it, they are stopped dead in their tracks when they touch Rex or Minirex fur. They're like, whoa what is that and and they don't have to understand that there's a whole like written text about how it should be evaluated and what it really should feel like for them to be hooked on it and to really want to know more that, that tactile experience is monumental and yeah petting areas are so important and like you mentioned that the breed displays have you been to the iowa state fair yes i have and they have a, a livestock department dedicated to you know 
you know, an example of every breed. And that's a highlight of the Iowa State Fair. And I know at the Georgia State Fair with the Humphleets and their group down there, they, they every year make sure that they have a representative of every single breed. So when the pat, you know, the, the passerbys walk through, they are exposed to those breeds. And I, I think Karen and Phil will, will joke that they have like members of their club that have like the token Beverin or the token giant and chill like the token rare breed just so that every year that rabbit is there on display at their state fair in georgia so that the public can walk in and be like oh wow look look at that and whether or not it catches their eye or not but they are they walk through that display going whoa we are at 50 breeds of rabbits i didn't have any idea so yeah fairs are, are crucial still to this day and i think you and i both will encourage people to keep going and, and keep that educational aspect because more than even social media it's a positive highlight on on what we all love and treasure. Yes, yes, it is. So funny story. I'm actually up in the Iowa Lakes area. We're visiting my husband's parents over the 4th of July weekend and family. Um, actually, I went up one year to the Iowa State Fair. I took rabbits. I showed rabbits. He went with me. And that is where I met my mother-in-law was in the rabbit barn at the Iowa State Fair because they came down <laughs> to meet us. <laughs> so they had full exposure to rabbits and me at the same time. They knew what they were getting into. <laughs> I think every every batch of in-laws should be introduced in the rabbit barn at a fair. Let's just get it all on the table right now. Well, that was what I told Nathan. We actually started dating not too long before the 2014 National Dutch Show in Kansas. And so I told him, you know, he was curious about rabbit shows. And I said, um, you're welcome to come. Please do. But I told him, here's the rule. If you don't like it and you get bored, please just leave and do something that you enjoy. I'm not going to get mad at you about this. Uh, it's not for everybody. I understand. I'm only going to get mad if you hang around and complain that it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> those are those are wise words to uh, any woman or man that has a spouse that's probably not going to get into the rabbit thing. Just, you know, do your own thing. You do, the, you, do you, boo. I'll do my thing. Exactly. So, so smart. Yeah, you don't have to do this with me. Just don't ruin it for me. Um, and so, like I always said, I, you know, I've said this for a very long time that the only person I would ever slow down for was the one who didn't ask me to. And so that that happened. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah, I think we'd save a lot of rabbit marriages if, if, we, <laughs> if they had a lot of chats like that beforehand. Very cool. So I've got such a great episode coming up. I'm really looking forward to your chat with uh with the legendary glenn carr this evening and you know if we talked about fairs with him i know he would probably say the same thing that fairs in their day and still today serve as a gateway to to our industry and um they're critical so uh without further ado i think we're gonna roll into that interview i can't wait Glenn, thank you for returning for a second week. And this part of the interview will focus a little bit on your time on the board. And of course, a lot of that was as the secretary and then executive director of the ARBA. So thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So we want to start um, talking a little bit about your time in the ARBA office. Um, so the first question I have is, what were your first days in the ARBA office like? Well, I'm going to go back a little further and tell you a little bit how that I got there. Is that okay? <laughs> of course. Okay. Well, um, you know, it. I went. I started. My term started and ran from um, January of 1985 through 2006. 22 years. I went over seven months earlier than that after I had been appointed uh, to train under Eddie Pfeiffer. And Eddie had been there for 12 years, from 73 to 84. 
So um, I got there like just for seven months. And so the first, when I got there, of course, it was just for training. He was still the secretary for seven months. And Eddie was kind of a taskmaster, and I'm going to talk about him a little bit. He was he was uh, dedicated to the job, and he was a hard worker, and he did everything himself. I may have told you this before, but I'll, I'll mention it again. He did all his own typing. Uh, he, he typed when he was in the military as a young man, and that's what his job was. So he had the best typewriter you could find for the day, and he um, he would do all his own letters he didn't have a secretary so he kind of expected me to do the same thing when i got to the, the there on that june first morning um he put me right to work in the mail room <laughs> uh he said you got to learn this and here's a typewriter for you i want you to type these forms well i didn't know how to type <laughs> and so i picked you know how you do one finger kind of thing and he realized that I probably wasn't doing a very good job of that. So he wasn't very happy about it. Um, uh, so we got off to a little rough start there. But after he saw that I was there to stay for a while, um, he let me work with the lady that uh, did all the mailing out for the day. And um, actually, in those days, we we would send out probably three or four bulk bags of books and uh, supplies to our membership. It, it was that many bags, full big mail bags, uh, things that I'd have to take to the post office every day to be mailed out bulk. Uh, that's wow. one thing that's changed. Yeah. And that was a daily, just a daily routine. Um, so uh, Eddie, of course, uh, the first thing when I walked in the door there, I was I'll back up when I went into the interview. One thing I noticed when I went into that that office, and that was, by the way, at uh, located at 1925 South Main Street. And he had been, when he took over, he moved it to a temporarily to a small little building, and then the ARB bought 1925 South Main Street. And it was a two-story uh, office building uh, with a nice parking lot and a, and a storage garage out back. And he made that uh, into a very nice office. However, he was a he was not a, uh, a fancy guy. He he was just kind of did his thing. So when I walked into the front door, there were there was a printing press off to the right, and then there was a table there, and and there was nothing to say. Boy, this is the ARBA office. It was like you're walking into a warehouse. His desk was and his office was off to one corner. There was nobody, no receptionist area or anything like that. He had a few books and a couple of shelves over to the left, which he called what he kept some of the uh, very beginnings of a library. He didn't call it a library. He just said, oh, this is where I keep all the old DRs, and here's where I keep all the magazines that I get. And I was very taken aback by that. It uh, it was just a work spot, a workshop uh, kind of thing. and. So I came from a real estate office where everything had to be pretty snappy. When people came in there, they had to say, oh, boy, this is nice. So that was one of my goals. And um, so the most of the staff, in fact, all the staff worked upstairs in the second level. And when I got there, the, the, there was one hit. They had just within the year or so, the Arab had purchased this humongous computer 
I wish I could remember the name of it, something 100, I believe it was, but it was probably the size of uh, three refrigerators. <laughs> it was big and it was tucked away in one room. And so they were doing a little bit on the computer at that time. They were able to uh, process mail, process orders, and get printouts and on a daily basis. Um, and I had to learn all those jobs, kind of like that's what my goal was or what he had a goal for me was to learn how to do all those things. Well, that was pretty complicated to do all that in just seven months. Uh, but I did spend the first, oh, I don't know, two or three months just in the, in the mail room learning every bit about how, how to fill orders and what supplies there were and what the costs were and how you ship it. And it, it was... <laughs> It wasn't like being an executive director or a secretary at that time. I was just learning the grunt work, I guess I call it. But uh, I'm glad he did it that way because looking back on it, it came in very valuable information for me and it helped me later on. So that's, that's the way I started off there. And then as of uh, January 1 of 1985, when my term began, Eddie and his wife, I mean, January 1st, they were in Arizona. <laughs> he couldn't wait to get out of the winter weather and retire in Arizona. So they were gone clear out of the city. And what happened there then, of course, his wife worked there with him uh, for a while. And, of course, she went with him. His daughter, uh, Susan, uh, had worked there with him. However, she was married and she was expecting a child. So she politely resigned at the same time. And there was another person that left. So I had some uh, employment problems right at the beginning of <laughs> of my term, but I knew what knew what was happening, so I immediately hired a, a personal secretary <laughs> who was Judy Johnson, and uh, she and I I changed the entrance way around so that when people came in, at least it looked a little bit like a professional office. There was a reception area there with a desk, and she would sit there. She did all my typing. So I got out of that. I didn't have to type anymore. All I had to do was write things out or dictate, and she would write my letters, and I'd proof them, and she would mail them out and do all of that. She answered the phone. She was my phone person my for everybody. So I got the office going the way I wanted it to, and the ladies upstairs, um, one lady was uh, worked every day on nothing more than membership. It was a full day's job. We would, believe it or not, we would take in so many members per day, renewals and news, new people that uh it was a full a full-time job i'm sure it isn't today but it was back then uh we took in um uh enough orders for supplies books standards that sort of thing that uh i had a one position was the lady that uh uh logged into the computer all the memberships and all the mail that came in on a daily basis Back then, there was no email. It was just mail that would come in, orders that would come in. And uh, at the end of the day, she'd have printouts for memberships, printouts for supplies, printouts for sanctions. And the other ladies then had their job to take care of those sorts of things. So it was it was, uh, it was a, a pretty active office back in those days. There was a lot of manual things being done. What did I do? Uh, gosh, my job was to follow up with Eddie and all the printing for the ARBA, like uh, uh, major printing uh, uh, was done in office. All the, all the uh, 
registration forms were printed on an offset press there. And he had a, uh, he had built himself a dark room on the upper level. He loved that sort of thing. He would go in this dark room and make plates and put them down on this offset press and run these things off. And uh, I, if anybody knows me, I'm, I'm not very mechanical. <laughs> and it took a long time for me to learn all of that. But I took it over. And then I eventually got smart and hired a, a part-time press operator to come in and do all that. And it saved us a lot of money because I was ruining a lot of material trying to make things work. <laughs> but we got it going there. And uh, so um, that was it there at the uh, Main Street office. And uh, we were there till 1996. So I don't know if you want me to go on with that part of it. I did need to back up here and say something when I first got there. And I, I made a particular point about this. Orrin Reynolds, Orrin Reynolds. Uh, he, at the time, was uh, had been president of the ARBA. He's the one that actually uh, got Orrin or got Eddie the job. Uh, he needed somebody to be close to him. And he lived about an hour away from the office and when he knew that i was coming over there he contacted me i didn't know him very well and he told me that he would help me in any way and believe me he was the best mentor anybody could possibly have if i had a bad day or whatever I, all i had to do is call him uh talk to him he was he was a wonderful wonderful man and a great mentor and i was very very um fortunate that he uh, was the editor of the dr uh and he told me a story uh, there were a couple of all newsletters that were put out prior to the DR and uh, he was the one that made the decision that we needed to put out this, this DR domestic rabbit magazine. And the board allowed him to do that. And they, the board hired Bob Bennett, as a matter of fact, to, to uh, produce this DR magazine. And uh, Orrin was in charge of that. And uh, Orrin had told me several times, he said, well, he found that, uh, there was just too many problems communicating with Bob and, and Bob was over in Vermont and he was there and he just decided he would take it over himself. And that was the biggest blessing probably to the whole ARBA because he was meticulous. He was a timely person. He, he didn't want to, he wouldn't take anything that was late. Uh, he, I don't need probably to tell you or anybody that's been in the ARBA for very long that he really did a fantastic job with that DR but after he retired, he he stayed there actually clear up until uh, um, my retirement so that the person taking over from me had a little bit of a problem because Orrin finally retired and he was in his, I believe, his 90s at that point. <laughs> um, so and today, uh, as I recall, I mean, right now, if I remember right, Eric is the basic editor of it, the main responsible, and he has a staff, isn't that correct, that works with him for the DR? At this um, I know Sandra White is the editor that we submit our articles to, but Eric oversees it, I believe. Eric, as Eric is the uh, main editor of it. In other words, it has to be approved by him. I didn't have any approval of any of it. Orrin had total control of it, and I'm sure glad that took a lot off of me and as far as my daily duties and worrying about the DR, all I had to worry about was getting my article to him on time. <laughs> if it was, there a you go. he was, he was fanatical about that, but he was also just a great mentor to the whole ARB. 
I would, in my opinion, he was probably the greatest member we've ever had as far as total contribution, uh, compassion. Uh, he just, uh, he was a phenomenal man and he had a great life. Uh, he lived up to like to almost 103. Actually, he judged a show at the age of 100. We made sure he judged a few Florida whites, which was his favorite breed. <laughs> so if anybody likes records, they're going to have to live to be a hundred to judge to beat his record. It's the oldest <laughs> active judge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to do my best. I think Alan will try at that too. Um, so I have, um, I, and I've mentioned this before to some of our listeners. I have a handful of old DRs and it's really interesting. I picked these up at a show years ago. I kind of forget even where it was. And each of them I look at just has some sort of gold that we've used for the podcast. This one is from September, October, 1987. And um, the president's was Dr. Reed then. And I'm going to read a segment from his report. The executive board, I mean, thinking about it now, these are all Hall of Famers. Doc Reed was the president. Tex was the vice president. You were the secretary. Connell was the treasurer. Um, you know, a time with obviously really strong and invested leadership in the ARBA as a whole. Um, he talked about the executive board of ARBA met at Bloomington, Illinois, July 31st and August 1st, 1987. A very productive meeting resulted. Secretary Carr has done an outstanding job in the past three years in office. He has implemented many new procedures to benefit the organization and the individual ARBA member. Any individual that had doubts about his appointment three years ago should be convinced that it was a correct decision in appointing Mr. Carr as secretary of the ARBA. The physical facilities at your headquarters are being maintained in excellent condition. When first occupying the ARBA headquarters in Bloomington, Illinois, the upper floor of the office was rented to another business. Later, the upper floor was utilized for the computer and other activities. At that time, there was an abundance of available space. Now, most all areas of the office are utilized and space is becoming a premium. The American Rabbit Breeders Association grows to serve you, the member. Well, gosh, that, that says it all, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, um, and kind of through your whole term, because I know obviously this changed a lot, but what sort of daily, weekly, or annual routines went on in the office? Well, some of the things that were my responsibility uh, was to maintain a, uh, all the printing, all the printing materials that we used. That we saved thousands and thousands of dollars. We didn't have to outsource a lot of the printing. The DR, of course, was not printed there. We had to send it to an M&D printing company that uh, Oren was good friends with the owner and always got a great deal there. And they printed also printed our standard for a number of years, and they were about an hour away. But as far as just uh, all letterheads, uh, membership cards, all those kinds of things were printed in office. And so that was a big job. That, that, was a, that took a lot of work, uh, and we had to learn all that. In the office every year, we had to do – we had to prepare uh, a yearbook, and so we had to generate everything into the computer and then send that to the printing company so that they could print that yearbook. And, and I don't know exactly what year they gave up on that, but I still miss that particular book. It was a lot of work. It was expensive to mail it out, but it was part of free to any member. Once a year, you got a yearbook, and it had all this information in it, as you well know. Uh, all the rules, regulations, the Constitution, and it also had the name and address of every member by state. <laughs> and so uh, they've scrapped that in more, in later years, but uh, that was one of our 
annual things that we had to work on. We also had to prepare ballots every year. Uh, there was an election of some kind, and when you had all these um, adult members, we had to make sure that they were printed properly, uh, printed so that, that no one could copy them, and we had to make sure they were addressed properly. And that took a lot of manual labor to do that. Um, we also, um, uh, let me see here. We had, of course, my job was part of that, just wherever needed. And we had a hard time keeping full-time employees there for, well, forever, matter of fact. Uh, that's one reason the ARB finally ended up moving or wanted to move over to Pennsylvania. Because in at that time in Bloomington Normal, the national headquarters of State Farm Insurance was located there. They were the largest employer. And then they brought in a big auto plant there as well. The, the Japanese opened up a great big auto plant there. And there were two universities there uh, so that the normal um, uh, clerical work that we needed people to do uh, was very difficult they wouldn't stay with us because we couldn't afford to pay them what these bigger companies would take if they were uh, capable and, and they'd come to us and they were, they'd train a little bit. And then before you know it, they're moving on to state farm. They always said, well, I, I can't stay here anymore. I got a good move to state farm. And we had an awful time trying to keep staff. And so we were constantly, we were so small when somebody left, that was, that left a pretty big hole in our daily routine. So and we we were always trying to keep people there for a good long period of time. And uh, that brings me to Susan Baker, who was Ed's daughter, who worked for him quite a while. And his wife worked there for quite a while. And of course, they're not going to quit and go anywhere. So he had a building. But when he left and they retired, then Susan had a family and she left. And a few years later, I was able to get her to start working part time. Uh, processing registration forms because she knew how to do that and she was excellent at it proofreading them uh that that was a big job we'd get hundreds and hundreds well several thousand a year of those registrations that came in there and we had to process them we had to make sure they were accurate and we had to uh, file the paper and uh, sue was good at that so then eventually she came in full time for until i retired and she stayed there until they moved the office so she was a real asset to the ARB for many, many years, and I thank her for that. That was great. I don't know if we'd have gotten through it all without her. Uh, so, yeah, what what else did we do in there? Uh, just uh, we, for conventions each year, uh was my job to correlate all the uh, uh, committee reports and all the uh, data that I needed to to provide to the board of directors and our board of directors meetings at a convention. And that took weeks to pull that together. And when they, we had to send that out usually two weeks prior to a convention to each board member so that they could look at what the, all the committee reports and they could look at uh, all the data so that they were prepared to um, contribute and discuss at a convention. So that was a big task every year that, that we had there. Uh, this was all before, you know, uh, email and all that sort of thing. So there was a lot of manual work to be done in there. And of course, between all of that, my job was to troubleshoot, to be on the phone. I was on the phone many, many times, four, five, six hours a day. Uh, people calling in, wanting to talk about this or that. And, and that was 
I call it PR work, uh, you know, try and to try to put out fires and to negotiate things. And, and then I, I would talk to the directors and to the president quite often. And I, that brings me to a point while I was in there for 22 years, I wrote down here, it might be interesting. Uh, I was, I just had completed my uh, vice presidency term the year that I was to go in there. And uh, so I worked with Doc Reed, he was the president, and I was the vice president for two years. And then he was the president for four more years, the first four years that I was in there. And then, would you believe uh, I, uh, the president uh, that I worked with the most was Cindy Wickheiser. She had two terms, and she actually was the president for 10 years. Of the 22 I was there, she was the president for 10 years. Gary Mishu was there for one term, and uh, that's kind of a sad situation. He uh, he ran for president against Doc Reed. Doc Reed was going to come back after he had to termed out the first six years. He had to sit out a couple years, and then he came back. And Gary just threw his name in the hat. I think he just decided he wanted people to see his name, and then he would maybe later on run. He knew he had no chance to beat Doc Reed. Well, unfortunately, Doc Reed passed away before the election, and the only other candidate was Gary Mishu, and that's how he became president. <laughs> I called him one day, and I said, well, uh, something about good morning, Mr. President. I thought he was going to pass out on the phone. <laughs> he says, you're, he said, you're kidding. And I said, no, you know, the, by the rules, you're the only other candidate. So you're going to be our president. And he, he served the two years. And then, uh, of course, Dr. Hayhow, I worked under him for six years as well. And, uh, as president, and of course, Doc was also Dr. Hayhow was on the board as a director prior to that. So, I actually only worked under four different presidents in 22 years. That's pretty good, I think, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, there have only been, honestly, I think a couple more presidents in my entire membership in the ARB, Mike Avising and Josh Humphreys. Um, right. So there have been right. a lot of people that have devoted a lot of years to this. Um, so yes. how did things change in the office, or, or did they really change when a new president was elected? Not really. Um, not really. Of course, you know, I, 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 Orrin always gave me this quote when I would, uh, <laughs> he was my sounding board. I can't say enough about Orrin Reynolds. He was a phenomenal man. Uh, but he would, when I would bark about something, maybe that a president or I were having a little issue, he would say, you know, the president, his duties are to run meetings and to, and to uh, appoint committees. That's his job. He doesn't do anything else. He has no other powers. <laughs> and that always soothed me because, you know, some some of the presidents and myself or whatever, you know, we'd get into issues and they wanted their ways and that sort of thing. And uh, that's when he would say, you know, they can't do that without board approval. They can't do that. You know, they got to get board approval, you know, that kind of thing. And he said they they're not dictators, you know. So that was always great advice for Warren. And, uh, uh, but as far as your question, the, the four personalities were quite different, and all of them made great contributions in their own way. Uh, Doc Reed, when he was in there, uh, he was a, a a wonderful promoter. He he actually did all his own letters. Uh, Sandy was his wife. I mean, when they would travel on and on the road going to shows or whatever she would constantly be writing typing letters right in the car he he did all his own mailing he didn't have me do any of that for him he did all of that himself 
Um, and that was a great help to me, especially being brand new. Um, uh, he was phenomenal about it to, to an excess really. <laughs> and, um, he had a lot of great ideas and, and promoted the club liaison committee. Um, and, uh, and a matter of fact, when I was vice president, I'll back up a little bit. He appointed me to be a club liaison person as the vice president. So I had to work. My job as a vice president was to to mediate any problems national, especially or any clubs had that I, they'd call the Arab and expect us to straighten it out. And I'd be the one to do that. And later on, and then when I became the secretary, then he appointed a committee to do that. And that's been a great committee for a long, long time. The club liaison committee. Uh, Cindy yeah. was a wonderful. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say we ran across uh, in an old DR where they talked about the pre the vice president having that job. And it said there was to be a meeting and all clubs were, you know, to bring their complaints to this meeting at convention. I thought, oh, goodness, I bet that was just pandemonium. Well, yes, it was. And and uh, I was there, but Doc was there as well. And when Doc was in the meeting, he ran it. I didn't run it. He did, which is fine. I had no objection. And I know, I remember a couple of the things that happened at that meeting, but I won't go into that. It's not necessary. But uh, he was a phenomenon. He was well-loved by everybody. He was such a gregarious individual and, and a great leader. And Cindy, for 10 years, uh, uh, matter of over two terms, she was the most compassionate of all of them. She loved the ARBA and in her own way uh, was a, a very great president in my mind. Uh, um, she was one that would listen and take advice and we could discuss things and I felt very comfortable with her. She wasn't a pressure type president uh, and we stayed in great contact all the time. She was concerned and uh, she was an early riser. I'd get the office at 8 a.m. and call her in the morning first thing. And gosh, it was only five o'clock in the morning out on the West Coast. And she was up and ready to go. To oh, wow. <laughs> she taught school and she had to get this all done before she'd go to school. And we'd talk till she says, I got to run. I got to go to school. I got to go to work. So <laughs> these were early morning phone calls. And she was a great supporter of me. She did a lot of things that uh, personally for me that, that, that I've been great appreciative of that. Gary, when he came in there, he was a, a good president. He tried. However, you know, he had never been on the board um, and he was just green. So he kind of uh, left everything to me. Uh, and I don't mean that in a mean way, but I, you know, I would discuss things with him. But uh, he wasn't one that uh, had his own mind about way, the way things should go, you know. And so two years he was in there of course and he as i said earlier he really didn't expect to be president so it was kind of late on him for a while and then of course dr hayhow again a very dynamic individual and i want to say something here about what he did that i wrote down here that that i thought was phenomenal i think it was when the was president we we had midterm meetings we started midterm meetings with dr reed by the way We'd have board meetings at the convention, but we also had so much business in, in Dr. Reed's mind that every year in the summertime, we'd all have to, they'd all come into Bloomington and we'd have a two day or long weekend session there going over ARB business. And when I first, when he first said that, I thought I didn't think they needed it, but in fact, they were very worthwhile. And that continued through Cindy's presidency and, and, and uh, also into uh, Gary's presidency and i remember that that's when doc reed came on or doc Hayhoe came on the board as a director 
we went to one of these midterm meetings, and it was a, a very uh, unusual. Uh, Gary Mishu opened the meeting, and he turned it over to Dr. Rudy uh, Hayhow, and none of us expected this. But what we did was uh, he presented uh, – uh, he asked questions. He says, what's the ARB about? What is our function? What what are our goals? You know, And he started getting us to thinking about – because we, are we uh, do we promote meat rabbits or are we uh, showing rabbits? Are we uh, what you know? What are we? We have nothing in writing. So for that whole meeting, uh, we had broke up into little conference things like you would do at a corporation, and we all would discuss. Well, what are the priorities of the ARBA? What are we? And, and we discussed all that, and we got together and. It, the whole two days was nothing more than a big seminar or a big conference about that. We did nothing about opening the meeting and talking business. And he, we put together um, an SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, a booklet with all this in there. There's probably one or two in the library now, and I know they don't do that now, but it was phenomenal because it gave us direction. It gave us what we were and where we wanted to go and all the different facets of our of our organization and uh i i give dr hayhow total credit for bringing that in there and getting that when he first started doing it, i thought this is a waste of time what let's get on to some business i really but it really was worthwhile and uh i wish they would carry it on every year then at the convention we would review it it was i believe in about five or six different uh sections in this notebook and we'd go in there and say okay uh, are we achieving this goal uh, where are we with this one? Do we need to alterate this one? And we'd look at it every time at every convention meeting after that, that he was president. And I think it carried on for a little while after that, but I, I don't think it's going on now at all. But anyway, I just thought I'd bring that up because I think it's something maybe they ought to get back to because it's uh, very helpful, especially for new directors that come in there. They could look at that and read that and they'd know exactly where we are and where we're going, <laughs> what our objectives are and that sort of thing. So. And we also, uh, uh, under Dr. Hayhow, pretty much uh, did convention show rules. Now, Dr. Reed's the one that started them with them, but we we, we did a lot of refinement with convention show rules over the years. And uh, uh, Dr. Hayhow was very good at that as well. And so, by the way, Connell Addison, all my term, all the time from the time I started, until he was our treasurer, as you stated. He came into office in 77, and he lasted several years. Out. He stayed in several years after I retired. So that was a blessing because I didn't have to worry about every month. I had to do the books in the office. In other words, I did the payroll. I had a, my I paid my employees weekly, and I had to write the checks myself weekly for all those years. It was not done outside. It was not. I kept books, and that's the way Ed taught me to do it. He did everything. I had to list every item that was spent in the office. If I wrote a check for something out of the office, I had to log it in, in manual books. <laughs> there was no computer to put it on for me. <laughs> and that took a lot of time, but uh, I was a meticulous kind of guy. And uh, so – that kept me pretty busy as well. Uh, I know as soon as I went out of office, the, the next person that came in within the first month to hire a, a company to do all the payroll. 
I had to pay all the federal taxes and all that sort of thing and keep track of all that and report it. And each month, by the way, I got off track a little bit, but every month I had to balance what monies came into this office, into my office, what I paid out myself, and the balance left over, I had to send to Connell as the treasurer. Every month he would get a check from me for the monthly business for all those years. And then when we got to the convention, of course, I would talk about how much came in, how much I spent in my office, and here's what the balance. And it would be thousands of dollars that I had to send him over that 12-month period. And then he would have to tell the audience or the membership in the general membership meeting, here's what I received from Glenn Carr in the office, and here's what I had to spend money on, and here's the treasury. So we had kind of a dual, and it, it, it was a good checks and balances. It was very good business to do it that way, and it worked very well. I was never late sending it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. I, I think that helps and that, you know, of course, inspires membership confidence to know that there's more than one person looking over those things. Right, right. And so, so you know, go ahead. You talked a little bit about this. Um, when did the ARBA begin to computerize some of their records? Well, we had the big computer there. Now, at that time, all they did, all it did was to run the, the business of the day it was that's how it was programmed before i ever got there eddie was able to get some he had a gentleman that did that for him and i followed up with that gentleman and of course as you well know that computer uh things were advancing very quickly at that time the first thing we did when i was in there was we he this gentleman this company and i can't remember his name but he was an expert uh he's the one that was doing all the uh work for the main computer in there was to put our registration system on a computer on a personal on a private computer so we bought all the private computer and all of that sort of thing and started instead of uh doing all the manual stuff it would do a lot of the uh we'd all we'd have to do is log it in and print out the forms and uh mail them out and i remember that finally we, we did series we would number them one to one thousand and then like one to 1,000 A and one to 1,000 B and C and D and all that uh, so that uh, there was a number after it because we, we didn't want to run out of numbers, so to speak. And we could only put so many, log so many uh, digits into the computer. This was probably, I'm going to say this, probably one of the big poofalls of my whole time there. We were very proud to say to all of our registrars out there that uh, – any registration they had with ended with the letter C, all you had to do was if the rabbit in the first generation was registered, you didn't have to fill out the back of it at all, which cut down because you probably remember registrars. That was a big job. They got paid very little. They had to fill out the whole pedigree on the rabbit, all the information about a rabbit to be registered and send it into us hard copy. We had to make sure everything was correct and uh, lots of times we had to send them back because something was missing. But anyway, we were in the process of eliminating all this. We had file cabinets after file cabinets there of uh, registration forms, all in alphabetical numerical order. And that was a big job. That was a full-time job for two people, <laughs> just doing all that massive paperwork. And we could wow. see the eventually. We, you could see that we would finally get out from under that um, by doing the computer. Well, guess what? Uh, something happened that we lost the memory on this thing. And 
I didn't know anything about computers. <laughs> and we lost it, and the backup didn't work. So we had to start all over again. And I had to go out to all the registrars and say, guys, you got to fill them in now for a good while. We, we've got to start all over. We couldn't go back. We'd had thousands in there by that time. We couldn't go back and redo those. So we, of course, we had the hard copy. We had the information, but we lost it all on the computer. So believe you can believe we, we never, we never failed to back it up daily from that point on. The guy came <laughs> in. So that was one of the things that we got going. And of course, as the computers uh, got better and better, we, and I don't remember what year we were able to expand. And that's where another person comes into play for me in the years of the ARBA. And I'll mention him, and that's Richard Gear. Most people know Richard as an ARBA judge. He was an employee for me for, believe it or not, 18 years. He was an employee at the ARB office. And he had a knack for computers and programming and all that sort of thing. And he was a lifesaver for me because I was a dud on that stuff. And he, when we, when we could see an advancement, some something that needed to be done, he would come to me and tell me what, the, and we'd, I'd approve it. And he was the guy that was responsible for moving us along to keep up with all the the advancements in the computer age of the ARBA. And he he was phenomenal and all that stuff. Um, uh, and and I, I couldn't have asked for a better employee. I've told people this, you know. He lives about 70 miles away. He commuted every day from 70 miles away. He'd drive home. He was the first one there in the morning and the last one to leave. He was that dedicated to that job. Never late. Worked the whole day and and was probably as good. A, and he was a my right arm. He would also, after a while, he would cover me for you know calls that come in about questions about rabbits. He'd help me in that. He was my right arm in that office. So, uh, wonderful individual. Seventy miles is is quite the dedicated commute. It is. It is. I mean, it was phenomenal. I can't imagine how many cars he wore out, but he drove them <laughs> until they dropped dead. And a lot uh, of rabbit judges do that. Yeah, I suggested to him many times about moving, but you know, we had family up in uh, I forget the name, Coal City. Yeah, Coal City up towards Chicago. And, and he wanted to get back there every day and uh, just uh, was very dedicated. Uh, and of course, we drove to a lot of rabbit shows together uh, uh, as judges and became great friends, of which we still are today. And uh, uh, he's, he's still doing pretty well. So, so, how did some things change in the office as more people began to use the internet rather than phone and mail? Well, as I said, he would he would come up with programs written to to expand our uh, use of the computers and and pro put programs on the computer where we didn't have to do them by hard copy anymore. And uh, he was the one pretty much that worked with the uh, gentleman that uh, was our console. And of course, we had to buy that big computer, the original one I told you about. It was on the second floor. And we had to get it out of there when we bought a new, more progressive computer. And I can't remember the name of it, but Dick Gear talked to this about the ARBA board approved to buy it. And it would do all these wonderful things. And it was, we'd never have to get another computer that would last us forever. <laughs> That's how naive we were. <clears throat> I had oh to pay my. somebody. I had to pay somebody to haul the big one away. They had to, it was so big, they had to push it across the back to the back door of the upstairs. 
there was a fire escape door. They pushed it over the balcony into the, to a dumpster. <laughs> I had to pay somebody a hundred dollars to do that. <laughs> oh no! And now, of course, we have much more computing power in the phones in our pockets. Right, right. If you could see that thing, I mean, it was it was a huge machine. <laughs> so of course, the next one was much better, and we moved along. And uh, and as of course, we had whatever type of computer we had in there that was supposed to last forever. It went maybe for four or five more years. I don't know. And, I, and again, the guy came in and said, you know, this one can't hold anymore. You're going to move up to something more. So, and I remember telling him, I thought you said this would last forever. And he said, well, I thought so, but things were moving fast. You you know, the advancement of computers was wonderful. And it was, it was all great moving, but it was expensive to do that. Oh, yeah. And then, and then uh, in 1996, uh, you know, we were growing so much that that we were crowded there in that office, and uh, the board had money, uh, the, the ARBA had some money, and and uh, I su suggested that perhaps we ought to look for a larger location in Bloomington, and they agreed. And it took us, uh, oh, I'm going to say two years uh, looking, and I had a couple of realtors looking around, and of course, I'd been in the real estate business myself, so I kind of knew what I wanted. And we were very lucky, and I'm a believer in fate. We were very lucky. The realtor said to me, I know of a business that's coming on uh, that you might be interested in. He said, you better go take a look at it before he puts it on the market um, because it's probably going to go pretty fast. And so it was at uh, 8 Westport Court. It was a, the, the building we stayed that we bought and stayed in there until we moved it just this last year. I walked in there and it was it was just perfect. A warehouse in the back, all on one floor, a great parking, a much better part of the city up among the uh, area. It was close to the airport. I mean, it just had everything close to the closer to the post office, which was a big issue. Wonderful. I was so excited about it, and they wanted a lot of money for it, and uh, we made an offer. And I, this is where my real estate experience came in. I said, you know, the gentleman, the reason he was selling. Uh, was that he had outgrown this place. He had started a business, a packaging company, and he'd outgrown it. He had people all over in offices stepping all over each other, and the warehouse was full in the back. So he was building a, a much bigger plant further north uh, of where he was. So that was his motivation for selling. And so I knew this, I found this out. And so I told him, I told my realtor to make a, a, this lower offer. I think it was about $50,000 lower than he was asking. And the realtor said, he'll never take that. That's a heck of a building and blah, blah, blah. And I said, take it to him. He's motivated. We'll give him six months to move out. We're not in any hurry to move in. We have time here. That's got to be a plus to him. The money might not be really what he just needs to know that he's got time to move, build his building and move everything. And he's got the building sold. He doesn't have to worry about it. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> oh, wow. We, he took He took the offer. My realtor just couldn't believe it. He came back and I said, well, you know, I wasn't in real estate for 15 years and didn't know how to negotiate. A lot of it has to do with motivation of the seller and the buyer when you can negotiate. It's not always the money and the price. It's different today, but back then that's, and I've very been very proud of that at the time. And that was a wonderful move. Um, when we, the board came in for a midterm meeting and, uh, uh, I was able to show it to, to them at that time because timing was just right. They came in for midterm and they looked at it and uh, 
they were excited about it as well. And I told them what the plan was. And uh, so we proceeded to buy it. And uh, it gave us six months to pack up everything. And when we moved, it was winter. I remember the movers came and it was supposed to be like 10 below that day. It was the worst day I can ever remember. We were below the movers were moving that the whole staff was working packing boxes and moving and it was a terrible move up there that day but once we got in there the computers were all set up dick gear made sure of that we didn't lose any days as far as work uh, on the computers and uh, the move went very smoothly and we bought a lot of new furniture uh, because uh, like i said eddie's if you'd have seen his office it was 1940s kind of things you know uh, his sofas could have sofa he had in there was not business like <laughs> I don't want to go too much of that, but he was just not one to, for for PR or presentation. He just he was a worker and uh and bless him, he was a good one. But I had the vision of making a uh, and I this comes down to one of the questions I think you had, what my contribution was or whatever, what I think I contributed. And I was proudest most of that building, finding the building furnishing like a professional office i don't know if you were ever in my office yes i think you were weren't you when i was there did you ever i know your mom was there yeah we both came there um yeah yeah, we were there um right as you were putting on one of the judges academies there right one of the just rabbit schools right we called them rabbit schools yeah (laughs) okay well you saw my office it was pretty impressive wasn't it Do you remember it at all? <laughs> yeah, you walked in and there was a receptionist and your office was on the left and there was Dick's office on the right and the office where memberships are processed and the warehouse space in the back. Um, it was a great spot. Right, right. And all the furniture all was new. Um, I didn't know about spending it, but the board said, you know, well, let's do the whole thing. And we had the money and that was a great investment because I made it something that the ARBA could be proud of. The members, I encouraged members to come and see it. And then, of course, then we got into the library, which I can talk about that a little bit later. But that's that's the thing. Once we moved in there, uh, it was a, a great move. And of course, it lifted the spirits of the, the employees. They were proud to come to work there. And and uh, I, I thought it was a beautiful building. It was kind of sad to see it close down, but we had to do it. And that comes later. But uh, it served us from 1996 up until uh, we sold it a year or so ago. Yeah, it did. It was a, a wonderful kind of like welcome to the association and a fun destination for some of our members that attended shows, especially in the Bloomington area. Right, right. The, so tell us a little bit about the establishment of the library there. Okay. The next thing that came along, you know, uh, I, of course, we had all these uh, old books and things and, and uh, piling up and we had them in the warehouse back there. And uh, I decided that we needed a, a show place, a library. And uh, uh, we had talked to Kevin Whaley. We needed the money to fund this thing. And uh Kevin was all for it, and, and he he was uh, quite a sponsor to help us get started with raising funds to have this ARBA library. And uh, uh, so we Gary Gary uh, Moore, who was another person that lived there locally, a sat breeder that old timers would know him, uh, was was my workman. Anything I needed done in that building, he would come over and fix it or make it or do it. He was handyman and. Uh, 
uh, he and I sat down and we drew a plan for a room and uh, where it could we take part of the warehouse there and then enclose it and make it a, 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 a library, just a, a carpeted with a big uh, a table in the middle of it and, and bookshelves. And then we could, we could categorize all these things. We could uh, hang old pictures up and make it a show place for the ARBA. And we worked on that. As a matter of fact, uh, Gary's one that I was had one size and he said, you're going to need more space than this guy. And we've got to make it a lot bigger. And I went ahead with him because I was trying to make sure we didn't spend too much money, but that was a good move on his part. He insisted. I think we made it another 15 feet longer or something like that. It would have been entirely too small in my eyes, the way I had it planned. But once we got it done, it was a show place. I mean, I was so proud of it. So it was just so nice. We had everything categorized in there, a big table. People could go in there and have meetings. Uh, uh, if we needed to find something, I oftentimes went in there to get find something and ended up being in there for an hour looking at something else that so you could never put down all the things that you you could have in there. And uh, so that, I think, was one of my big contributions to the ARB, one of the things I'm pretty proud of. Uh, and we also had a plaque there that people who would donate money we we had a plaque put up for if you if you donated i believe over uh, $500 your name was on this plaque on the on the outside of that library now i do know that not all is lost it was closed down of course i'm sure that eric has packed all that cuz eric has a compassion for all that sort of thing too for all old things and he wouldn't throw away a dust rag i don't think he's very meticulous about things and so I know he's in the process right now in the building they own now, which I haven't seen, and I'm anxious to go see it, of expanding the library because actually we really fill it up. We couldn't keep all the things we wanted in there. We had to rotate things uh, because uh, th we just had too many things. People would donate to the library. I had one lady that came from Pennsylvania one time with a carload of old books and things that she had that she collected over the years. Uh, we used to make an appeal. Don't throw things away. Let us know. We, if it's got any kind of historical value, bring it, send it to us. And she came over. Unfortunately, they were mostly all books and things that we already had. So we didn't need them, but I didn't throw them away. I put them out in the warehouse and uh, set, they set out there for a long time. Fortunately, we had the space to do that. Uh, we didn't throw away very much at all, unless it was soiled or something. It just wasn't of any value at all. We, we put it away, but, we kept it pretty pretty clean, and so I'm excited about the new one. I'll get off of that, but as soon as Eric, uh, he's promised me as soon as it's all completed, uh, uh, he's going to have an open house, and I can't wait to go over, and I, I'm sure you, you're going to go with me, aren't you? I can't wait I to am. see it. <laughs> yes, and I, I actually kind of have some of my own contribution to take. Um, some of the um, old COD files that I had received, I have gone through and scanned and cataloged some of those, and that's going to be kind of an ongoing project for me. So those will be part of the library as well in both digital and paper form. Right. I'll back way up a beginning just to think about this. When Eddie took over from Jimmy Blythe, um, all Eddie brought over here was uh, several old file cabinets full of all these records. Jimmy Blythe worked in a little small building. Uh, he lived up, as I understand, lived on the upper level, and, and he his office was downstairs and over in Pennsylvania, and he had one lady that did all of his typing for him. So everything was in these old file cabinets, and when Eddie came over, of course, he had to get more file cabinets and all of that sort of thing. But We've kept the main one, and I'm sure that's still there. That's got uh, 
uh, little tabs in there for uh, memberships of people way back at the beginning. And the uh, judges and registrars, when they paid their dues, they'd always make a listing on a card. They'd have to pull the card out and say, paid dues, January 1st, blah, blah. And there's a lot of old history in there. I, I used to dig in there, and I couldn't find anything about a judge somewhere. I'd find it in there. We didn't throw it away, thank goodness, is my point. We kept it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's got great historical value, and it's still a, it never made it to the library. It's in the warehouse, but I'm sure that uh, because it's just in an old file cabinet, <laughs> but it, it sure was useful. Well, it's amazing how some of those things do become useful. I know I've already dug into oh, yeah. some of those old CD files when people have had questions about things, um, working standards and, you know, why presentations have not been successful. Right. So right. Um, another question, during your term, the secretary job became that of the executive director. Can you tell us a little bit about why the job was renamed? Oh, yeah. I'll try to get it back. Well, that was, again, uh, I can't tell you the exact year, but I know that it, uh, Dr. Reed, or I'm sorry, Dr. Hayhow was the president, and we had some uh, changes. We had some resolutions uh, that needed to be passed, and it involved uh, renaming of something. I can't recall exactly, but it involved uh, changing uh, in several parts of the Constitution and bylaws where it involved the secretary. And I always felt that secretary in the new world, as I called her in modern times, the concept of a secretary is that somebody sitting at a desk typing and doing all these things like Eddie liked to do. He was a pure secretary for himself. <laughs> I had a secretary. I wasn't a secretary. Uh, a more appropriate word would be an executive director because corporations and things like that it means that someone that actually runs the organization the day-to-day -day work and uh, we thought about um, a CEO but that wouldn't be proper and so Dr. Hayhow and I I said let's can you change that to make that executive director I think it's a lot more professional and it's it suits what I'm doing it's actually it's exactly what I am I'm an executive director I'm not a secretary so that's he didn't have any problem with that, and we put it in there, and the membership passed it in the resolution that all the convention. So that's how that change was made. <laughs> Very cut and dry. Yep, yep, yep. So you talked a little bit about some of your accomplishments in the ARBA office, but um, as a director, a vice president, secretary, and then, of course, executive director, you were part of the board for over 25 years. Um, what are some of the big accomplishments you think of the board during that time? Well, that's a, you know, you put that out there, accomplish, accomplishments. Well, I could tell you one thing about the four class picking best in show at a conventions. That's one thing that improved over the years drastically from what I said the other day about the groups in, uh, I believe it was 1996. It was the convention that was to be in Peoria. And uh, Dick Gear, of course, was the chairperson of that. And I had the fortune of picking best in show a number of times prior to that. Uh, in fact, I think uh, I was the one that established voting for the uh, judges to do the conventions. Uh, for many years, uh, they just would pick somebody out of the audience and say, hey, you're going to pick best in show after a while. And I was uh, the one that formulated the fact that 
the, the, the exhibitors uh, of a convention should uh, have a say in who the judges that pick best in show. And so we, we devised a, a uh, convention show rule where that had to be done. A, a ballot would have to go out uh, with uh, all the uh, uh, catalogs and they would have to file a, a a, a vote. So tell us a little bit about how the best in show judge selection changed during your time on the board. We have, for a, a number of years, uh, they just picked uh, judges out of the audience to do it. There was no plan for who would pick best in show. And uh, so I felt that the exhibitors should have say in who should be selected. So we developed a, a ballot that would be sent out with the catalogs where any any uh, exhibitor uh, could both open and youth could vote for a judge to pick best in show, and uh, that took hold. And they do that every year right now. So when anybody enters a convention, they can they've got a form there to vote for a best in show judge. And uh, then the four classic uh, four groups are common anymore. Where before it was just uh, uh, best four and best six class, which uh, at that 96 convention when Dick Gear, I don't know if I mentioned it already, but uh, he and I formulated the four groups, and uh, that's happened ever since. So that's worked out very, very well. It includes more judges, and it's an honor and all that kind of thing. And at least you have now four reps. And from my personal perspective, you have four rabbits to select the best in show from, where before you only had uh, two rabbits to look at. And, uh, and, and you can see, as you well know, in, in the last number of years, the best in show ceremony has grown into a phenomenal uh, event. I look forward to it every year. I mean, it's it's been broadcast and everything else. It's a wonderful event. Yeah, it's become quite a production, and I think um, mm -hmm. a nice uh, showpiece for our membership. Absolutely, yeah. So, what are some other things um, that the board accomplished during that long stretch that you were part of it, or other, you know, changes or improvements to the ARBA? Well, that's a pretty tough question. I mean, basically, the the board, you know, when they meet once a year, they go through the committee reports and they make decisions. If there's committees that make recommendations. Uh, uh, the board is, is there just as a, a corporate people meet and, and just go over the f last year. They look at all the financial statements and, and as far as um, uh, guidance, making new things happen, uh, I just, there were a number of things. I don't know anything just spectacularly that they did that right off the top of my head. Uh, the rabbit school was, was an important thing for a while. Um, and uh, that's where people came into Bloomington and we actually put on, we had speakers there and did a hands-on kind of thing. We felt like judges conferences sometimes just weren't getting the job done. So that was very uh, successful for a number of years, but I can't really pinpoint anything uh, amazing that the ARB board, their job is to just, um, Make sure everything's going well. You know, that's the, they're the ones that make the final decisions in a lot of things. Uh, they vote on, of course, all of the changes in the standard. They have to approve. They have to approve, recommend any changes to the Constitution and bylaws and things like that. So it's just pretty much 
a lot of business. <laughs> <laughs> well, you bring up a really important point about the way this association works and how recommendations come from the committee to the board. I think there's a misconception sometimes that a president is kind of a dictator and, you know, pushes an agenda through, but it's really not like that. Can you tell us a little bit about how all of that works? Because I know you've witnessed a lot of it. Right. Well, uh, yeah, committees, anything that uh, that involves the ARBA, especially anything that involves money, uh, if it's not under budget, under some committee budget, it has to be approved by the board. I think sometimes people misunderstand that. Um, and they think, well, the president can do this or make that or make these decisions. And as I said early on, the president can only run a meeting and and appoint committees. He has no authority to, matter of fact, he can't vote in case of a tie or to break a tie. So he doesn't even have a vote, he or she. Uh, but the board um, should be consulted or, or can look at changes in the standard. For instance, that's the big thing every year, every five years. They have to look at every change that the standards committee proposes to them. They have to approve it. If they don't approve it, then it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's done. They have to uh, look at um, uh, what's the word? any resolutions that are proposed. They go to a resolution committee. That resolution committee for change of the bylaws or constitution, that comes to the board with a recommendation from the resolution committee. They can't approve it. They just make a recommendation. The board has to look at it, and they change. They they run the ARB, and simply they just – Everything has to be approved by the ARBA board. The president can't dictate. Uh, he can't, uh, he or she uh, just can't do that. And uh, they have a lot of influence. Presidents have a lot of influence. And when being on the board all those years, I guess I'd say this at this point uh, some people that come on that board over the years, you know, they're not business people. They, they've probably never even sat on the board sometimes, usually. Not usually, but sometimes, you know, their background may be a blue-collar worker. They're great people, good rabbit people, honest people. Uh, they they want to do well, and that's fine. They represent their district. But when you get into a business like this really is, when it gets to that level, money spent, thousands of dollars are budgeted. Um, it behooves uh, – we need people on there that, uh, that have a little bit of business sense and uh, – Sometimes you don't get that, so uh, that can be a problem sometimes, but uh, uh, that's just the way we work. We, they're voted in uh, by the membership, and so they're there, and uh, uh, some are very great. Uh, one, one time I will mention uh, that I thought about, and I know that Tex and I talked about this one time, when I retired – and um, the new the new officers came in there at that time. There was quite a turnover at that time. Back uh, when '76, when I came on the board, I think I mentioned on the first thing that there was well over like 150 years experience on that board. All these old timers were on there. Silo, it's the name I couldn't remember, and he was on there. Uh, but when I went out of office, they had all these new people coming on there. Uh, the total years of experience on the board, the total board, the officers and the four directors added up to 12 years. Wow. Yeah. It was very new, just a, that's not bad, but it also, 
that experience was not there. And, and it's There's gotten a learning better. curve. Yeah, you know, right. There's yeah, definitely yeah. something to be said for experience and new blood and a balance of that. That's very, very true, and it's important. And, you know, I was on there long enough that lots of times uh, new people came on there and they'd bring up a topic or something that had already been rehashed time and time again, but they wanted to bring it up again, some issue. And I would just thinking, here we go. We're, we're going to go through this again, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the way a board works. You know, I'll give credit to the Airbnb board though. The people who came on there for the most part, almost always, I mean, their hearts were in it. They were compassionate about the job. Some of them were more adapt to that kind of, that kind of atmosphere, but everybody on there that ever came on there were honored to be on there and they worked hard to, to do a good job. I, I can say that, but uh, uh, sometimes it was difficult <laughs> and I would rather have, you know, ideally people that have a mind of their own. There, there were people on there that were easily swayed and, and I'm sure that's with all kinds of boards with anything, any company or any, anything like that uh, organization uh, there's the stronger willed people in there and um, and so you can get things true through that maybe uh, uh, people will sit there and be quiet about it and not be happy about it but uh, that's just that's just business there's nothing that you can do about that that it is so did you find it difficult to separate work and life when your hobby became your job work-life balance is a big topic this day nice I saw that was a that was a great topic. I can answer that one real easily. Work to me was a hobby. I looked forward going to work. There was no separation. I mean, uh, when I took that job and came over here, uh, once I got settled in, uh, I couldn't wait to get to work, and I hated to leave in the afternoon. I I was engrossed with it and, and just loved my job. I was very very fortunate that that my hobby turned into my career. I'm one of those very fortunate people and very thankful for that for all those years. Uh, it was never work for me. Yes, there were days that weren't so hot, but overall, just, uh, gosh, uh, I just can't say enough about how lucky I was to have such a job. Uh, I loved it. <laughs> and I, I well, tell I you, think I think I mentioned this through. before. I'll be, I interrupt you. The reason I retired when I did, I wasn't very – and I could have continued on, but quite honestly, the reason I decided to retire was for the fact that computers and writing programs, and I could see that it needed more advancement, and neither Dick Deere or I, either one, really had the capability at that time to stay with it, especially me. Uh, I felt like I'd done all that I could do. I could, I contributed to all that I would be able I did my thing. I, you know, I made these accomplishments, a library, a new building, a, a new face for the whole ARBA. Our membership was great. And I felt like my career had been well. I mean, there were some hiccups in there, but it, we'd come a long way in that 22 years. But I really felt that I, it's time to get newer, younger blood in there that continue on. And that's exactly where we've gone with Eric. Uh, Eric's been in there. Gosh, I was thinking that he's already been in there like 10 years or so. And uh, what a great executive director he's been in my mind. I mean, the whole uh, things have changed a great deal. And he, even in his time, he's had to move the office and everything else. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it was never, never separate. In fact, on weekends, I go off to rabbit shows. So there was my free time <laughs> <laughs> judging. So rabbits were everything to me. Uh, 
and I had a wonderful wife that understood. Uh, she didn't complain, and uh, we just had a great time. Well, that's important in your home life. I can attest to that. Oh, yeah, 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 it is, and I can understand that. But, yeah, she was a – well, she was a rabbit person, you know, when I, when I met her. She was my second wife, and my first wife was very well in rabbits too. But uh, but then, of course, she uh, evolved. She could see that it, I was totally consumed with it. There was no room for her, I guess, and so she went into raising bulldogs. <laughs> And after a few years, I couldn't even get her to go out and feed my rabbits. She didn't have any interest in them, <laughs> but she was a grand lady. I do want to mention, I know that Alan mentioned it in an afterthought the other night, and this book, Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories. And that's written by Bobby Whitman. I have one in my hand here. I, I, he mentioned it. I strongly recommend anybody, anybody that uh, is interested in the background of rabbits and the history of rabbits to, to uh, secure this book. It's phenomenal. It's probably one of the best books I've ever seen on the issue. Bobby, I, Bobby Whitman was uh, chair of the library committee and, uh, um, and did a great job. That's, that's another person when I was in there, he helped me. He would, uh, he would, uh, find things all over the United States, uh, out of the country. And, uh, if you don't mind, there's a, there's a quick history here. He was, a, he was a youngster and competed in the youth judging contest in Syracuse, New York, when he was a young person and he won it. And the one he beat out was none other than Scott Williamson <laughs> for King. <laughs> Scott told us and, that. <laughs> and he was always, who did? Scott, Scott did. did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, he's always been very proud of that. And he was a unique individual. I didn't know him until later and when the library got going. And I and the word had it that when Jimmy Blythe passed away, our secretary, he had all these archive things for the ARBA and that that uh, Bobby had secured all of it. He and Jimmy liked Bobby and he gave it all to Bobby Whitman. That was the word that was out. So. It just so happened that uh, he lived in Beaumont, Texas, and I didn't know him personally, but my wife's family was there, lived there. Her parents lived there, and we'd, we'd go down to Beaumont to visit them. And so I looked up Bobby one time when I was down there and got to meet him, and uh, he, he, at that time, he was running a, a floral sort of thing, a garden of some type. Make a long story short, he had some things, but not not like everybody said he did. He said, "I just have a few old books, and the ARB will get them, and all that sort of thing." And and, and we became very good friends. And um, they, when he found out that there was interest in the library, uh, he uh, took me to his to his house. I hadn't been to. I went to where he worked, his house, and I've never seen such a, a collection of rabbit things worldwide. I mean, he had antique things from old China and all these things. He was, he had a, I told him, I said, how much do you have these, these things insured? And he said, oh no. And he lived in kind of a seedy neighborhood. And I said, aren't you afraid that boy, somebody, there's millions of dollars of stuff in here. And he said, they don't know it's in here and they wouldn't know what it's about anyway. <laughs> he wasn't a bit concerned. <laughs> But then, unfortunately, he, uh, while he was chairman of the uh, library committee, uh, he was he he actually uh, uh, updated our guidebook one time. And the guidebook was getting kind of stale. Doc Reed had upgraded it, and uh, it was kind of getting needed some new information. And Bobby took that on, and in no time at all, he did that for me. What a big job that was! 
and it was very good. Uh, then he decided to write this book, and it, it turned out wonderful. And uh, uh, when he was toward the end of his life there, and we, Cindy and I were very close to him. She was the president, and and uh, he uh, wanted to donate all that to the library, but uh, he had some conditions that I won't go into. He was a little concerned about it, and um, we were able to uh, – uh, talk with him about assuring him that it would be taken care of and uh, because it was priceless. I mean, I couldn't go. I, Ellie could tell you, our librarian now. And he also had a lady down there, a friend of his that uh, was a multimillionaire who was through him was contributing money to the library fund. She actually bought one of the trailers for the ARBA when they needed a new trailer. He talked to her and she just handed him over the money and, and they were good friends, and she was set to donate $50,000 to the library fund. Oh, and he wow. passed away. Yeah, she was, she was all set to donate that much money. She, was, uh, and she had the oil on her family farm, and they were, she had so much money, she didn't know what to do with it. And um, he told me right at the end there, he said, you know, uh, I'm set to, she's supposed to give money, but it didn't, it didn't materialize because he got ill there and passed away, and it was so sad. But... Uh, Bobby was a, a big factor in that, that library, and, and this book is a, is a great book. And he was someone else who just, I mean, he loved rabbits. He lived and breathed rabbits. Yes, yes, he did. He, he, was, he was always for the exotic breeds. He would bring in, uh, in fact, he's probably one of the very first ones that brought lionheads over here uh, when they first, he'd been over to Europe. He'd been all over the world uh, and traveled a great deal. And, you know, he wasn't a wealthy man. I don't know how he could afford it, but he must have spent every dime that he'd make uh, <laughs> traveling and things. He wasn't he wasn't affluent at all. He was very uh, blue collar type of person. And uh, but yeah, he he brought a lot of stuff in from all over the place. And uh, so so it's not a secret that. The hobby is, has some challenges lately. We're dealing with both human pandemics and rabbit pandemics. It's made it difficult to schedule shows. Um, overall, our population is becoming more urban and kind of a little more removed from agriculture. A lot of people have, you know, had um, regulations about keeping animals enacted in their towns or their counties. Um, people, you know, are now on social media, and that's kind of changed the face of the hobby. I think um, for a lot of those of us who've been around for a little while, we've kind of been looking back at the 90s as a, like a golden era in rabbits when it seemed like the doors were wide open, the you know growth and possibility was endless, you know, anyone could raise rabbits. Um, people reminisce that everyone was nicer before social media. I don't know about that. Um, but, but from your years of experience, what kind of advice would you give to us to kind of move through these transitions that we're experiencing now? Well, that's a that's a wonderful question. What kind of advice? You know, we old timers. You know, I I, I just uh, I see such a change. I'm not. I don't know that there is a good answer to this as far as advice. Social media is uh, a factor. You know, people can get a lot of information on. So there, there's no need for them to join an ARBA. They get all the information they want. Uh, on social media and then and, and, um, 
So on our membership, I understand it's probably about half what it was. And when it was in a peak back at 40,000, it's probably 20,000. I understand recently, I haven't looked at any figures, but I think there's someone said that we're about 20,000 and that's both open and youth together. So uh, it's dropped. Um, and there's so much more competition for people's times these days. They're busier. And, uh, and so, and like you said, the where to raise rabbits, that sort of thing is uh, complicated. There are not many farms around and it's difficult to keep rabbits in urban areas. Uh, I, I just don't know that I have any advice. I, I love the golden years, I guess. I was fortunate to be through that. And, uh, today it's so fast moving everything and, and uh, shows are so fast as I said in my first day. they just want to get there and show and leave and there's not a lot of socialization going on I, like it used to be uh, the clubs are hurting local clubs are hurting because no one wants to do any of the work um, you know to put on a show it takes manpower and everybody wants everybody else to do it and uh, uh, the young people you know, I shouldn't say not necessarily all young people, but they don't they don't seem to be uh, interested in that sort of thing. They, they've got too many other things going on. So I don't know. I don't really have any advice that I can think of. I'm concerned about it. The ARB will continue. I mean, I, I'm amazed that, that they're doing as well as they have been doing, other than the memberships drop. Um, well, it sounds kind of like what you're suggesting to us is to – be physically present and get involved. Do you think that's correct? Well, ideally, evidently, for sure. I mean, that's probably the biggest complaint that I can recall. And the, a lot of these local clubs like to do more, but they're held together by three or four people, and they're not young people. Whereas, like our Columbus Rabbit Club back in the day, uh, we had seven judges in our club. We had almost a membership of 100 and we'd have a meeting every month and we had parties and picnics and table shows, little, little club table shows and a lot of activity. But today the Columbus club is totally gone. There's hardly any rabbits around Columbus anymore. There's probably only 25 or 30 local clubs in the whole state of Ohio, where at one time there was at least twice that many. So we've lost a lot of local clubs and mainly because Young people don't have time to go to meetings that they, they don't need to go. You know, they, they find everything they find on social media and otherwise. And uh, uh, I don't have an answer for it. I don't know. It's, it's a different way of life. And uh, uh, I just don't know that I can give any advice I, because I, <laughs> I'm not in the future that much. I'm just, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I <laughs> I'm still yeah. old school. I have so many memories of so many great times and things and, that I experienced, and uh, things have changed quite a lot since then. Well, I think you know, I think that's helpful, and, and it's it's interesting. Almost all of our guests that have been around at least since the '90s, everyone to a fault has talked about how much they miss the single shows, how much they miss the time that they were able to just spend with people in person talking about rabbits. And like you said, you can find things on social media, but at least from some of the groups I'm in, some of that advice is extremely dubious. Um, it, it's yeah, right. kind of the blind leading the blind in some ways. And I noticed oh, yeah. even for me, especially after the pandemic, you know, I've been to a couple of my local clubs meetings, which I'm not always very good about being able to be present at. And I just really enjoyed the time with rabbit people. Right. Right. 
That's very true. Well, again, uh, the rabbit clubs in, in Ohio, anyway, I can count on one hand the ones that are really healthy. Uh, the rest of them are just uh, when they have to send in for their charter renewal, they have to scrape to come up with six members to be officers in their club to fulfill their obligation for their own constitution and bylaws. It's that bad, and uh, and it's not getting any better. There's not many new local clubs popping up. There are more like specialty breed clubs that are out there. They're doing pretty well, but local all breed clubs are, are hurting. And that used to be the basis of the ARBA was those local all breed clubs, and their members. And uh, it's, it's a concern. Yeah. Well, we've talked to a couple people. I know we, um, we did an episode with Jason Karwaski in Minnesota that's put together a club um, and there seems to be kind of a resurgence in that, especially when there are people in areas where shows have been kind of restricted and there's been a, a loss of the ability to go to shows in the area. So maybe this is going to be a, a bit of a resurgence for that. I hope so. I do hope so. Yeah. Well, there's a group that's putting on a lot of shows all over the Midwest right now. And, um, I guess it's now called a show circuit that they're they're going over a number of states and uh, putting on shows quite often and um uh, uh, it's not put on by local clubs it's put on basically by a one club with a board of directors and a and a president that sort of thing and that seems to be the new kind of the new fad uh, the new thing out there they're replacing, I guess what I'm trying to say, they're, they're, they're replacing local clubs putting on shows. They're, they're having shows in the areas where these local clubs are located, and they come in there and have their shows, and they leave. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that I don't know if that's going to hurt local clubs in the long run because don't you think basically local clubs are put together and their primary function is to hold shows. They want to have one show a year, or two shows a year. It's a social group. Yes. But their, their goal is to put on their proud to put on a show that XYZ club's going to put this all breed show on at this place. And they do all the work and volunteer. And that's, that's basically what a local, local club forms to, to do that. That's their, their mission, isn't it? or has been for years. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of local club members also are very involved with local youth groups or 4-H or things right. like that. There's a lot of crossover, you know, bringing youth and their families into the ARBA. So, you know, I, I kind of think there's a place for both. Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. But it's a new, seems to me, a new phenomenon that, that's happening. It's, it's a result of the the pandemic and local clubs were, held down they couldn't do it and uh, so uh, this new association is uh, a show circuit as I understand that uh, is putting on a lot of shows and they're as I understand pretty successful but they're like the ones I'm telling you they they have three four or five shows and specialty shows over one day or two days and it's hitting they come in and go I mean there's not much time to socialize or do anything else <laughs> yeah uh, I hope our shows don't evolve to that overall, I guess. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think a balance is good. You know, Alan talked a little bit in the last episode about a backyard picnic show. And, you know, maybe we need some people to step up and host a few more of those specialties. Because I know that's, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, the National Dutch Show, obviously, you've been to many of those. 
And there's been some talk over the years of wrapping that in with a all breed show. And I know I've been very resistant to that because I love the weekend of just Dutch and Dutch people. Oh, and I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. They're big enough. They can only go in with a local club is because the smaller ones can't afford to put on a big, but the Dutch club is strong and they've done that for years and it's one of the best in the country. No doubt about that. It's one of my favorites. Very Mine true. too. I may be a little bit biased, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. I mean, you know, I'm a checker person too, but, and you know, they, they usually have a national by itself too. And they're lucky if they have maybe 200 there, but they still try to do it away from any other shows. Most of the time, not always, but most of the time. Well, I or think our transit group is small enough. They have to go. They usually have to go in with other clubs. They can't afford the, the building and all of that sort of thing on their own. Yeah, I think that's where just a lot of that talking rabbits and real learning takes place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The checker boys years ago, we used to say midnight judging. We all look forward to that. After the judging, we'd have a, a meal and then we go back to the showroom. And hopefully the judge that did them that day wouldn't be there. If he is or her there, we'd hide them somewhere. And, and we do the midnight judging. And I learned more. I mean, those were great. The breeders would talk about this and that in breeding. And it, like you said, it was a school in itself. You learn more there. We look forward to it. We called it the midnight judging. And sometimes it ran well over midnight. We'd just be out there bringing rabbits out and talking about them and learning about them and having a good time. And that's kind of like what Alan was talking about, picnic kind of thing. And years ago at the Columbus Rabbit Club, they annually had a table show. That's what it was referred to. And that meant that it was an unsanctioned show put on by the club strictly for the club members. And they would come to this little place and, and they wouldn't even have a regular judge. They'd have somebody in the club that says, okay, I'll judge this breed or that breed. And it became a very social event and had a great time and everybody learned from it. It was wonderful. I mean, I was excited to do those table shows, <laughs> but those are a thing of the past. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure the hobby will evolve. And as long as we have people who love rabbits and people who are willing to volunteer, we will thrive. And, you know, to finish this off, I want to say, you know, I think Eric is doing a great job. I'm excited about the new location. There's a lot of advantages to that up there. It's a lot less expensive uh, to, to have employees in that area. That was the one thing I always had a problem with in Bloomington was to keep good employees. And Eddie even had a worse time when he, he just couldn't keep anybody in there very long. And it cre created problems. And that's one of the reasons we decided to move away from there. And uh, so... Eric is uh, on the right path, and I'm very encouraged uh, about the future of the ARBA. Uh, and I can't say enough about Eric and, and, and looking forward to the future. I, I can't wait to see the new building and see how the library is going. And uh, it, the ARBA will survive, you know, uh, in a different, probably in a different gear, so to speak. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it'll survive. It'll run. <laughs> That it will. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to do not one, but two episodes with us. I know this has been one we've really been looking forward to. You're someone that both Alan and I have looked up to for years as a mentor, as a source of good advice, and just a model of service and love to the association in this hobby. So thank you again. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Good luck. Good night. Good night. 
Bryony, that was such a great interview with Glenn Carr. I uh, I love the first interview, but I I happen to really pick up on a lot of things that he said on this one that really touched home. And <laughs> a couple of things I had to jot down because first of all, I was I was drinking a coffee when I listened to uh, his his uh, his remark about Eric, and I had I think I actually snorted coffee out of my nose when he said that <laughs> Eric would save Eric Stewart would save a dust track. <laughs> when it comes to preservation of ARB materials. So great interview. Um, that one was hilarious. Glenn was remarkable in what he said there. Um, but on a more serious topic, I loved how he took his 22 years in office as executive director or, or you know, formerly uh, secretary and talked about his relationship with the four presidents. Um, I think that was really candid and uh, really from the heart. And as he said, Every single one of them was different, and everyone offered something different to the association and, and to his role as the executive director. You know, you've now sat in with three hours of, of Glenn Carr for uh, two episodes, which I said last week, you know, Glenn Carr doesn't really talk publicly anymore. Like, getting him in this situation, in an intimate uh, situation where he was going to be able to talk about, you know, kind of off the cuff, what it was like all those years during the golden age, as you said, Um how was it for you? What, what do you reflect on after this and what touched you the most? Well, I loved it. I mean, for me, this has been one of the bucket list guests and in interviews. But I think the thing that really struck home with me was when I asked him that question about a work-life balance and his hobby turning into his job. And I was not expecting that response. You know, I, I kind of expected to hear about, you know, turning things off and going home. But I, I just love that. That one hit me right in the feels when he talked about how he loved it so much that it didn't feel like a job. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes I think we wonder if we can ever live up to our mentors in this hobby. And we wonder if we've got what it takes to maybe, you know, give so much to the association, make as much of a difference. Um, but I love that. And I, you know, I think that really hit home to me because, you know, I do a job that takes some time now, but it doesn't feel like a job to me. I love it. I enjoy it. It's fun. And I love it because, you know, I love this hobby and this association so much. And it's kind of always been a goal of mine to give back. And, and I like that. I like that, that attitude, that commonality, that I think common thread that runs through the generations in this hobby. And he was so quick when you asked him that question to say, oh, it never felt like a job. I loved going to work every day. And I think that was, that was magical to, to hear him. And it was quick when he said it. I, I bet he, you know, he didn't have time to, to think about that, but that was, that was in his heart that going to work every day was not work. It was what he loved to do. And isn't that something that we all aspire to do? Oh, I think so. And, you know, like you said, most of us are not that lucky. And, and for most of us, that's a good thing, because our work is something that, you know, maybe distracts from the things we want to do with our time. Um, but I, you know, what a wonderful statement. And, and I really, I appreciate the the love he had for the job and just the gratitude to be able to do that. Um, you know, you kind of always felt that you, you felt that he loved the job. But it was it was cool to to hear him state it. Yeah, it, it was, and he has given so much over the years. And to hear his stories about, <laughs> I loved his reflection on what the office that he moved into looked like under Eddie Eddie Pfeiffer or Pfeiffer looked like. You know, it was very basic, and that Eddie was 
um, I think, was he a military typist? I, that was, I didn't know that. And everything was very basic, but it was machine run machine in a metaphorical sense. You know, it was very black or white and things got done this way, but, but he walked in there as a realtor, someone that would have kind of like that kind of joie de vivre, um, you know, aspect of this. I want to make this office special. I want members to be able to walk into this Airbnb office and feel like, wow. Kind of like he said about his, his, um, his employees that, that when they shifted offices to the Bloomington office and he said they were proud to go to work every day. Um, that I think that Glenn Carr gave, well, I don't think I know he gave an image to our association that formerly we didn't have. And that's the image that you and I grew up under that this is a really cool thing. And this is something that I want to do. Yeah, I think so. And I think it highlights too just the the different strengths that people from different career backgrounds bring to that position, um, secretary and now executive director, and the different ways, just something seemingly simple like, you know, previous experience or a resume really work to kind of change the tides of the hobby and improve it and move it forward. I think that's really special. It's so special. And looking back at those at, um the executive directors and the secretaries that, that we've known, they are, they all have something different that, that have come uh, to the table with, except one common trait that they all loved rabbits and KBs. And that's what brought them to the job. And remember he said, he said he wasn't going to take the job and driving home to Ohio with his son. It sounds like dad, you need to take this job. This is what you love to do. I mean, he said he wasn't going to, he, he wouldn't have taken the job if his son hadn't kind of stopped him in his tracks and said like, Hey dad, this is, it's a, it's a pay cut, but you love this. And this is what you want to do. You need to do this. It's so cool. Yeah. And what a remarkable story. And, and that conversation had so much uh, effect and impact on our association. It's the little right. things sometimes. Maybe we should interview his son. <laughs> if it wasn't for him, we, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty cool. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed uh, the last two episodes, episode 17 and 18, uh, with Bryony's interview with the legendary celebrated Glenn Carr. He is uh, someone that has affected all of us. And whether you know Glenn Carr personally, or whether he was your secretary or executive director while you were in Rabbits, maybe you're newer, um, I will, and Brian will, and I will both assure you that you are exposed to this industry and this association because of the work and dedication that he put forth and he continues to, to put forth. Um, and I'm going to end this episode 18 with a quote about mentors. And it's, I think this, this kind of fits with what we just talked about with careers and, and your passion and being able to meld the two. And it's a quote by Winston Churchill. It says, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. So thank you, Glenn Carr for your more than 22 years, your lifelong dedication to the ARPA. And we thank all of you for listening in every week and loving this, whether you call it hobby or industry, this passion as much as we do. So, Bryony, what do we uh, say every week when we conclude our episodes? Talk rabbits and talk cavies. We will see you next week. Well, this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association. It does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARPA. To learn more about the ARPA, please visit www.arpa.org.
done.